Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Secularism. This is your hostess, Annie Sepakaya. Today we are interviewing David Niozzi, author of Nonbeliever Nation, The Rise of Secular Americans, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2012. Niozzi is an attorney and activist, and served two terms as president of the American Humanist Association. He is currently the president of the Secular Coalition for America, and since 2011, has been a regular writer on humanist and secular issues for Psychology Today. Good afternoon, David. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, We are talking to you today about your new book, Nonbeliever Nation, The Rise of Secular Americans. You essentially challenge in this book that America is a Christian nation. Is that correct? Oh, I definitely challenge that notion, yes. So why isn't America a Christian nation? I mean, you hear a lot about uh, Americans being the most religious people in the developed world. Well, that still doesn't make America a Christian nation. In fact, anyone who's familiar with the American Constitution knows that the Constitution is a godless document. The only reference to religion in the original Constitution is a negative. It states in Article 6 that uh, there will be no religious test for holding office in the United States. So I don't know how one could infer from that that somehow we are a Christian nation. So how did this myth get perpetuated then? Well, I think there are several interests that uh, really promote it. Uh, Of course, uh, the most obvious being the uh, religious right, the, the conservative fundamentalist element in American politics, which in recent decades has gotten stronger and stronger, unfortunately. Hmm. When you say um, secular Americans, what do you mean by the word secular? Well, the word secular really means without religion. It doesn't necessarily mean anti-religion. It just means without religion. Uh, It it means worldly as opposed to spiritual and, and whatnot. So, Uh, Secular Americans are Americans who are personally secular. In other words, they are personally without religion. Uh, I think just about all rational Americans, religious and non-religious, believe in secular government and the the basic concept of separation of church and state. But uh, only a segment of that population would be personally secular. In other words, atheist, agnostic, or just non-religious. There's a lot of different labels that people use to describe themselves if they're without religion. But uh, secular Americans would be an umbrella term that would include all Americans who are without religion or at least without theistic religion, because there are, to make make it even more complicated, there are some non-theistic religions out there, and we would consider anyone who's non-theistic, even if they're attached to a non-theistic religion, to be a secular American. Mm, Okay. Um, And how many Americans are secular? I mean, 
based on the current data. Yeah, as best we can tell, and uh, we should uh, acknowledge right from the start that when we're talking about religious demographics, there's a lot of fuzzy areas. There's a lot of overlap between categories and there's a lot of uh, ambiguity. There, there's people who describe themselves one way, but then ask the question a different way. They describe themselves in, a, in another way. So, uh, but as best we can tell, uh, at least 15 to 20 percent of the population in America uh, would qualify as what we call secular Americans. And just one way of demonstrating that would be to look at uh, probably the most respected uh, demographic survey of religion in America. It's called the American Religious Identification Survey. It's conducted by Trinity College down in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, that survey found that about 81% of the population uh, affirmatively acknowledges a belief in a God. 69% believe in a personal God. About 12% believe in a higher power, whatever that might be, uh, adding up to 81%. So we have about 19% of the population that does not affirm a belief in a God. And that percentage is probably a lot higher, right? Because people uh, usually, I mean, not usually, but sometimes do not tell the truth or they'll mark down the religion of their family as opposed to what they actually believe? That's absolutely right. I think uh, there's a strong argument to say that the 19% figure is probably conservative because people, even people who essentially aren't religious, who really don't have much God belief or much supernatural belief at all, uh, will still tend to identify with the religion of their upbringing uh, if asked, oftentimes anyway. So uh, I think uh, you're right. And another way to, to suggest that the 19% figure is low is to just look at church attendance. Uh, only about half of Americans actually attend uh, religious service on any sort of regular basis. Now, I'd be the first to acknowledge that the half that doesn't attend religious service would include many people who do have God belief and who are perhaps even quite religious. But clearly, there's a sizable uh, part of the population that does not uh, really practice religion. Right. So the concept of America as mainly Christian, is really something that is perpetuated, you think, by the religious right? Yes. Not just the religious right. I think the media have latched on to the idea that America is a very religious country. You hear pundits say it all the time without backing it up. Uh, I think it's just one of those uh, pieces of conventional wisdom that seem to uh, have gotten traction, and uh, it's kind of hard to snuff out these incorrect uh, myths uh, without a, a lot of effort anyway. Yes, because if you take that percentage, 20% is a sizable a sizable minority, much greater than the Jewish population, for example. It certainly is. It's bigger than okay. just about every religious category, except the very largest, like 25% of Americans identify as Catholic, so the Catholic demographic would be larger, but uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find any others, maybe Baptists as well. But aside from those two major categories, uh, just about every other religious category is well under 20%. So, uh, yeah, it's very much an invisible demographic. Uh, people like to talk about religious diversity, and when they do, they often overlook one-fifth of the population. 
Yes, and is this a percentage that is uh, growing steadily? It certainly is, especially among young people. Uh, when you look at uh, the under 30 demographic, you find that uh, it's more like 30% who identify as uh, not having any religion, and, and the non-theistic segment is larger as well. Mm -hmm. You talk in your book about the rise of the religious right. Um, what were some of the factors that led to this rise, and what are the, the negative consequences of that? Well, I don't think we have enough time to talk about all the negative consequences, that's <laughs> for sure, because uh, as I point out, uh, the, you know, I think when we think about the religious right, we tend to think of church-state separation, and we tend to think, uh, yeah, that they really are problematic in that area, aren't they? They always want to inject God into every, uh, every element of government and whatnot. But in reality, if you look at American public policy, the impact of the religious right is much more broad than just the single area of church-state separation. In fact, I argue that there's really uh, not any major area of public policy in America that does not uh, feel the negative influence of the religious right. And I could go right down a laundry list. If you look at the political realm, uh, the realm of politics has been very much tainted and degraded by the anti-intellectualism of the religious right. Uh, look at Rick Perry last year when he launched his presidential campaign uh, in a football stadium uh, prayer rally that was piped to churches all over the country. You know, that would have been politically toxic in America, even in the Republican Party a generation ago. He would have been looked at as too bizarre to be taken seriously. But not in today's America. Uh, that, that's the state of politics now. We have prayer rallies launching presidential campaigns. And, you know, you look at the environment, uh, you know, it's the religious right causing so much of, of, of the trouble as far as uh, the acceptance of global warming and uh, the need to regulate uh, environmental activity, the, because there's this dominionist feeling that God gave us the world to exploit and we need not worry about environmental regulation. I know it might sound bizarre if you're not familiar with this area, but that's very true. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, look at education policy. We've got creationism and a lot of other very anti-intellectual policy being uh, promoted by the religious right social policy. It's not just abortion thereafter. They're even talking about birth control now. Uh, it's sad to think that in the year 2013, uh, birth control is considered controversial. Uh, we should be well beyond this, but thanks to the religious right, we're not. And how have they gotten away with this? Because you said that even 30 years ago, this would be ridiculous. Yeah, it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it's really hard to dissect why the religious right is so successful. But obviously, uh, it started with Jerry Falwell in The Moral Majority back in 1979, and I think what he tapped into was an element of the American electorate that, frankly, is quite anti-intellectual and quite prone to fear-based arguments and uh, qu quite uh, intimidated by modernity, if you will. And unfortunately, this is a fairly sizable part of the American electorate, especially in certain areas. 
And uh, I think Republicans especially, but not just Republicans, but uh, the Republicans really latched on to this demographic as part of their overall strategy. Uh, you know, th this social conservative demographic, now that it was politically uh, mobilized by the, by the moral majority and its successors, uh, became a very important part of the GOP strategy. And what's happened now is that we've got the country very much divided uh, with this religious right being an important part of the dynamic in American politics. And you say that actually the religious right has gained a lot of ground, but mainstream religion has lost a lot of ground. So there's nothing else in the middle anymore. That's kind of true, yes. If you look at the mainline churches, uh, those are the ones that are really empty. Uh, the, the fundamentalist and very conservative churches are thriving in America, generally speaking. The mega churches have grown. It's an explosive phenomenon that really didn't exist a couple generations ago. But now in, in many parts of the country, that's the way religion is marketed. And on the other end of the spectrum, the non-religious demographic is growing and finally finding its traction. Why is there an association between atheism and communism? How did that come about? And is it still pretty prevalent, you think? It's becoming much less prevalent. Uh, I think back in the early 20th century when communism uh, in its 20th century form anyway, uh, in the Soviet Union and then subsequently other countries, uh, communism became, came to be seen as a real threat in America, obviously a threat to capitalism. And uh, after World War II, the uh, Soviet Union was, was our primary uh, adversary. So in that climate, uh, since communism is uh, an atheistic uh, philosophy, uh, atheism became associated with communism. The, the mistake being, of course, that since communism is atheistic, all atheists must be communists. But of course that's not true. And uh, I think we've outgrown that kind of thinking in modern times. In fact, I like to tell a story about uh, last year I was at the Secular Student Alliance's uh, conference where there's a lot of secular students there to talk about the movement and talk about secularism and what they can do. And I was talking about this 20th century association of atheism with communism. And a lot of the kids were looking at me like, what? What's that? They hadn't even really heard of it, that, you know, that somehow the secular movement might be associated with communism. Uh, we tend to forget if we're old enough that the Cold War has been over for over 20 years. You know, uh, I'm old enough to still think of the Cold War as something that happened in my lifetime, but it's been over for over 20 years. Uh, one secular student told me when I talked about the association of atheism with communism, she said, oh, that's so 20th century. You know, it, it's just so outdated in thinking. Uh, older folks don't see it that way because they remember it differently, but younger folks just don't have that association, thankfully. That's really interesting. Now, what about the association between atheism and Hitler? Because that is a big one that gets drawn out a lot in debates. And there's absolutely no evidence that Hitler was an atheist, is there? No, absolutely not. In fact, Hitler referred to God quite frequently. Uh, it's one of the great lies of modern history that somehow 
secularism and atheism, agnosticism, religious skepticism would contribute to something like the Holocaust. Uh, the fact is that in 1939, uh, at the height, obviously, of the Third Reich, a Census was done in Germany, and about, I believe, 95% of Germans identified as Christian. Only uh, 3 or 4% or so identified as unbelievers. So uh, the, the idea that somehow Hitler uh, rode an atheist wave to power and in, in promoted uh, the Third Reich through atheism is absolutely false. Mein Kampf, his, his masterwork, if you will, uh, contains dozens of references to God and the Creator. The SS wore on their belt buckles uh, the motto, God with us. Uh, they consider themselves doing God's work. Uh, it's one of the great lies that, that uh, atheism had anything to do with the Third Reich. In fact, the Third Reich uh, came down hard on organized free thought groups in Germany because there were organized free thought groups uh, in the early 20th century in Germany, but they did not uh, have anything to do with the Third Reich. And you argue that atheism actually has, well, arguably never actually hurt anyone as opposed to religion. Well, what I would say is that uh, nobody has ever been uh, killed that I know of in the name of atheism. I mean, obviously there have been atheists that have done bad things. The people are people, and you're going to find good and bad in just about any demographic category. Uh, but uh, the idea that atheism as a worldview somehow contributes to social problems or to violence is absolutely false. In fact, demonstrably false. Uh, as I point out in one of the chapters in Nonbeliever Nation, the uh, uh, correlation between social problems and religiosity is very strong. Uh, when you look at more religious societies, they tend to have more social problems than less religious societies. And it's not just a little bit of a correlation. It's very much an overwhelming correlation. Uh, we're looking at murder rates, other violent crime rates, uh, STD rates, teen pregnancy rates, uh, you name it. Uh, you know, j just about any major social problem, you will see that they line up much stronger with religious societies than less religious societies. And interestingly enough, that is the case both within the United States when you compare more religious states to less religious states and internationally when you compare the more religious United States to less religious developed countries. In both instances, you see that uh, the social problems and social ills are much greater in the religious societies. That doesn't mean that these social ills are necessarily caused by religion, though. No, you're right. But what it does mean, and that's a very good point, you know, correlation does not equal cause. And I'd be the first to admit that. But certainly when you look at that strong of a correlation, there's no way to seriously argue that secularity causes the problems. I mean, you can argue that maybe religion doesn't cause the problems. Maybe the, maybe the more religious societies have higher murder rates and violent crime rates and teen pregnancy rates for other reasons. 
You know, uh, there are a lot of socioeconomic reasons that contribute to social problems, but there's no way with the correlation being so strong that you could argue that somehow uh, religious skepticism and a secular worldview causes social problems. And, you know, we're really not arguing superiority here. We're looking for a place at the table. We're looking for society not to discriminate, not to have a bias against secular people. And when we can cite statistics like those, I think it's very hard to justify discrimination against seculars. You say that there are actually a lot of parallels between the secular movement and the LGBT movement. What are some of these parallels? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I would start by saying uh, I'd be the first to acknowledge that, you know, every analogy breaks down uh, once you start scrutinizing it. So I'm not suggesting that the two social movements, if you will, the LGBT movement and the secular movement are perfectly analogous. But there are some interesting similarities between the two. You know, if you are secular in your worldview, if you're an atheist, uh, you are a member of a, of a group that is very much scorned in America, uh, much like gays and lesbians traditionally have been. So th there's that uh, thing going on. It's also the type of personal status that one can keep hidden if one wishes to. Uh, I can go through my daily life without telling anyone that I'm an atheist for the most part, uh, except that I happen to be so involved in the movement, but I could, and, and just about all atheists could. And the same thing can be said for uh, same-sex orientation. Uh, for the most part, one can go through life and uh, not let anyone know. You can be in the closet, so to speak. So there's that. And what I like to point out is that the, the LGBT movement has been phenomenally successful in the last few decades, uh, much more successful than people would have predicted a few decades ago. I don't think back in the 70s and 80s anyone would have predicted that, you know, in the early 20th century, gays and lesbians would be uh, almost fully accepted in American society and able to get married. And, and, and these are things that uh, I'm old enough to remember, that, that these kind of ideas weren't on the table a, a few decades ago. Uh, so, you know, how did they do it? Uh, how they did it is through an identity-oriented activism, right, by encouraging their members to come out to the extent they could and be public and let your friends and neighbors know that, that you're a member of, of this uh, demographic. When you know somebody who's a gay or who's gay or lesbian, it's much harder to hate gays and lesbians because uh, familiarity uh, makes you less fearful. It's, it's less uh, strange and unknown. Well, I think a similar statement could be made about the secular demographic. Seculars for too long have been in the closet, uh, acting as if their status is somehow something to be ashamed of, or at least you know something not to be mentioned in polite company. We've got to change that. Mm. You mentioned that some commentators have noted that Bush's presidency was the best thing that ever happened to organize secularism in America. Why is that? 
Well, let's put it this way. Uh, when George W. Bush got elected in, in 2000, I guess uh, I'm being a little generous saying he got elected, but when he became president in January 2001, uh, it sent uh, shockwaves through much of the country uh, because here we had for the first time not just somebody who uh, danced with the religious right and who uh, promoted himself to the religious right, but who appeared to be actually of the religious right. He was one of them, uh, very much so. And right away in his presidency, we found that he was having weekly meetings uh, with fundamentalist leaders, getting advice from uh, fundamentalist uh, evangelical Christian leaders. Uh, he, he was seeing them as an important part of his constituency, and, and he was one of them. Uh, that scared the daylights out of a lot of Americans. You know, the anti-intellectualism that came along with the Bush presidency and Bush himself uh, really mobilized a lot of Americans. I think it was the point in time when a lot of people finally realized that the religious right was not just a passing phase. I think many of us went through the 80s and even the 90s thinking that the religious right was something that was going to fade away sooner or later, okay? America couldn't continue down that road very long. But with the Bush presidency, we saw, no, we, America really could continue going in that direction uh, if there's not a new kind of uh, thinking. And I think Bush very much mobilized secular Americans into thinking that, you know, we really need to try something new to reverse the terrible damage that's being done to this country by, by the religious right. And, and the reason the religious right was able to get away with it for so long is because there was really no secular demographic visible in standing up to challenge it. Nowadays, a lot of atheists are often accused of being militant. Uh, why do you think that is, considering that uh, there's no, you know, atheist army? Well, the term militant atheist goes way back. I don't even know where it originated, but I know even as a child, I remember hearing the term militant atheist, and I'm sure it, it existed long before I was born. So there's this uh, stereotype out there part of the negative image of, of atheists in American culture is this notion that they're militant. Uh, I wrote a column about this in Psychology Today where I blog, and uh, it's called The Myth of Militant Atheism. And then I have a section, uh, a couple pages in the book where I talk about the same thing, that where uh, athe the militant atheism truly is a myth because the, the people call atheists militants when all they're doing is standing up and being visible. Uh, Christian America is very uncomfortable with visible atheists, and if any atheist stands up and asserts his or her rights in even a minimal way, uh, they will quite likely be labeled militant atheist. And this is part of the reason why we need atheists and agnostics and other secular Americans standing up and being visible more often, because when they are visible more often, the myth of militant atheism will likely fade. 
Do you think that the shock of, of Christians toward atheists who are coming out and saying, you know, I don't believe in God, do you think it's because of religious privilege, basically, that they've always been the majority, so it's actually very, very odd for them to hear any criticism of religion at all? Well, I think there is a comfort factor. I think a lot of uh, a lot of religious Americans, and I guess even a lot of non-religious Americans, just aren't familiar and aren't comfortable with the idea of visible atheists, uh, atheists standing up and demanding a place at the table as public policy is being shaped. You know, standing up and running for office openly as an atheist. It's just something that hasn't traditionally happened very often. So there, there is a comfort factor. I hesitate to call it privilege because I think that word tends to get overused when we're talking about minority status and minority rights. There's a place for it. In, in uh, uh, I would hesitate to call the phenomenon that you're talking about, though, Christian privilege, although I suppose uh, when Christians just assume that since they're a majority, the government must reflect their religious views and that their uh, their religious demographic must dominate government. I suppose you're actually right that that is uh, privilege in action, isn't it? One often cited benefit of religion, aside from the you know belief in the supernatural, is community um, that it provides for people. You actually have an interesting take on that. You say that community is actually becoming uh, less necessary in certain ways. Well, I think it's at least arguable that religious community is becoming less necessary sometimes in some places. I'm not one of these people who says uh, there's no place in the secular movement for secular religious community. There are uh, there is religious humanism out there, put it that way. Uh, in the Unitarian Church, there's quite a few humanists, and then there are uh, religious humanist groups such as American uh, Ethical Culture, uh, the Society for Humanistic Judaism, and there are others out there as well. So uh, religious humanism is is great, and you can have religious community that way. One thing I point out, however, is that with more progressive developed societies, we are seeing that many people get their community in other ways by participating in civic events, for example. Uh, Western Europe is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being overly general, but uh, Western Europe, for the most part, is very secular. Uh, you know, in Scandinavia, the churches have been empty for a long time, and much of Western Europe, the churches have been empty for ages, in England and, and whatnot. Uh, yet they have very strong, vibrant societies. There's a lot of secular outlets. And I'm not talking about secular uh, religious humanism necessarily, but just uh, civic life, arts, culture, and uh, government and, and politics, that there are plenty of places where one can get community and a sense of belonging and a sense of camaraderie. And that's one of the wonderful things about modern life in developed society is that there are other outlets. Uh, religious community is something that was more prominent and more necessary before 
all these uh, more advanced uh, concepts of of uh, society were around. Do you see any hope in terms of the hold that the religious right has on America? Do you see things getting better anytime soon? And is there anything that uh, individual people can do to counteract that? I do. I'm an optimist, a cautious optimist. I'm not sitting here predicting, uh, you know, the the rise of secularism and, and the downfall of the religious right. But I do think that if you look at the situation, it's looking pretty good for the rise of secular Americans, I think. And the rise of secular Americans almost necessarily means the weakening of the religious right. Uh, in fact, the, the last election cycle in, in the United States kind of reflected that. Uh, we saw the, the religious right very much on the ropes, you know, losing in all the uh, jurisdictions where gay rights was on the ballot, for example. And we're really seeing a turnaround in American culture where these social conservatives who want to turn back the clock on women's rights and, and reproductive rights and uh, in so many ways want to impose their religion on the, on the greater society, uh, th- th- that kind of thinking is very much on the defensive in America today, much more so than it was a decade ago. So uh, I'm certainly optimistic, and you see – uh, secular, not only the secular demographic growing, which is a good thing and reason for optimism, but also probably more importantly, uh, those within the demographic already are more inclined to stand up and be visible. And you asked what can seculars do? That's the wonderful thing about this movement is, you know, with, with a lot of movements, you know, that there's talk about, you know, civil disobedience and sticking it to the man, so to speak, as my son likes to say, you know, <laughs> that this movement doesn't really require that. All it requires is that you be willing to stand up and be visible, come out of the closet, let your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers know that they are among someone who is secular, who's an atheist, agnostic, you use whatever label you want, humanist, secular humanist. Uh, but the more visible we are, uh, as with the LGBT movement, the more familiar we become and the, the less disliked we, we become. And uh, it only strengthens our, uh, our political power and our power within society. David, thank you so much for talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. You have been listening to an interview with David Niozzi, author of Nonbeliever Nation, The Rise of Secular Americans. This is your hostess, Annie Sapukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism.